Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. We got to do a shout out on a July long weekend to those who were here at seven in the morning to set everything up and to make this happen. So, yeah. A July long weekends, probably for our history, is always the least attended. So that's why I was standing at the door to see who the latecomers were. Now it's kind of funny because, you know, I, I want to greet people and people walk in and they feel so uncomfortable. Like, are you in trouble? Do I, are you waiting for me? No, I'm just here to say hi. Let's see who's part of our community. Yeah, it's good to see you all. And uh, thank you for taking the time to be here today. We're continuing on our journey through the book of Mark. And I would invite you to uh, turn to Mark chapter 4. And as you're doing that, let me ask you a question. When you're in conversation with someone, is it common for your mind to drift to other thoughts? Okay, for example, you may be thinking that you have a lot of your plate or you're thinking of all the other things that you need to get done during the day. Maybe you just argued with your partner or your child, right? And you're still upset about it. Now you've engaged a conversation with somebody else or Maybe you're just exhausted and you're thinking about how cozy your bed is uh, when you finally get to turn in for, uh, for the evening. So who is that today? Do I get a show of hands? Is there anybody? Okay, so we got a few of you. All right. Thank you for admitting your sins. Um, <clears throat> or maybe when I'm speaking, your mind begins to wander. Uh, you're likely still hearing me, but you're truly not listening to a word I say. Do we have any other people admitting that this morning? Of course not, because you're not listening. Oh, okay, you are listening, obviously. <laughs> I think that both uh, these instances can negatively impact our conversations and relationships with people when you think about it. If they feel that you're rarely listening to them. Just saying, happens every Sunday morning for some of us. Anyway, many of us use the words hearing and listening. We do. And we use them interchangeably. However, there are several important differences between the two. And there's, uh, according to Dr. Kelly Workman, who's a psychologist at Columbia University Medical Center, hearing is the passive intake of sound, while listening is the act of intentionally working to comprehend the sounds, specifically the sounds that you hear. Now, that whole saying, in one ear, out the other, speaks to the difference between hearing and listening. So Dr. Kelly goes on and says that hearing is a passive, involuntary, and sensory process in which we perceive sounds. It's a physiological response that involves our perception of sound. It doesn't require focused attention when you think about it. For example, if you're watching television, you can still hear the sound of traffic sirens outside, right? Uh, or traffic or sirens, I should say, or your neighbor's dog barking, the wind blowing, or if you're working in the office writing your sermon, you can hear the sound of the staff laughing down the hallway all day long. <laughs> Listening, however, is an active, voluntary, and intentional process that involves making sense of the words and the sounds that you hear. It requires your attention. Now, in turn, you may develop an emotional response to what you hear. And so listening with intent to understand is referred to something uh, as 
active listening. For example, if you're listening to somebody talk about a difficult day that they had at work, you'll probably try to give them your full attention and you focus on them. And as they speak, you begin to start to understand what their experience is like or what that impact was on them. And this helps you in this process of communication to make thoughtful comments, ask relevant questions, and further understand the experience that the person is trying to relate to you. Then you add to this, Simon Sinek said this, he says, hearing is listening to what is said. Listening is hearing what isn't said. Now there's a third part in all of this, and Sinek points to the importance of this when he says, words inspire, but only action creates change. Now I cannot speak for you, but for me, what I have found is that there's a huge difference between hearing and listening, especially when it comes to the teaching and the preaching of scripture. It's not enough for you to be in the room at all. You got to think about it this way. You can be in the room where the word of God is taught. Think about this. You can be in the room where the scriptures are being taught. The word of God is being taught. And you're not going to benefit it at all from it. You can hear the scripture preached. You can hear God's word preached. You can hear it teached. And the crazy thing is, is that we can walk away utterly unchanged. I, I can't tell you how many times where I've had people come and talk to me or I've heard third party stuff going on and I'm just going like, I just talked about that. I just explained, I, I know they were there. I just preached on that. Did they not hear a word I said? You can have joy at what you're hearing. And it makes no difference in your life when you leave the building. And why is it that some people respond to the gospel when it's preached or taught and others don't? Why is it that you can talk about Jesus with a bunch of your friends and some will respond positively while others will just simply shut you down? Why is it that a preacher or an evangelist can share the same message with a whole group of people all at the same time and some will accept that message for a while and others it seems to actually just fall on deaf ears? And I think that's the question that Jesus raises and then answers in the parable that we're about to look at. So far in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus bringing God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. The lame are walking, the sick are well, the blind see, the tax collector and the sinner are both forgiven. The promise stretching way back to the Garden of Eden is now being fulfilled and Jesus is undoing the effects of sin and he's beginning to make all things new. And part of that newness comes now in his teaching, the way he's trying to communicate. And in chapter 4, we begin the teaching of the parables. Next week, we have a special speaker. He's my buddy. His name is Marty Middlestat. Some of you may know him. He's a Pentecostal or Pentonite, however you want to put it. Him and I grew up together and went to seminary together. And I've left the last half of this chapter 
for him to uh, work on, to which he thanked me very greatly. So I, I, I hope that you'll enjoy next Sunday with Marty here. And uh, yeah, because I am, and I'll be sitting in the front taking notes and criticizing him. But what we have is this section now of parables, and we start the first of, of four, and Marty will address the, the next ones next week. But a parable is a story that makes a point. And, and what's the point of this one? Well, of course, that's what we're going to find out very shortly. So pick up your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1, and it says this again. Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat, sat in it on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. Now, this is really interesting because the place that Bible scholars actually believe that this took place um, is called the Bay of Parables now. And just a little cove, it's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the land around the bay creates a natural amphitheater with the land slowly sloping up the hill. I had the privilege of actually being there. And so according to tests that were actually conducted by an archaeologist and a sound engineer, a single person standing in a boat anchored off the shore could be heard clearly by an audience of several thousand people. Isn't that amazing? So this is a perfect place for Jesus to teach this massive crowd that has gathered around him, that has been following him around. And he taught, him many th he taught them many things by parables. The word parable literally means to come alongside, to place alongside. The idea is to take two things side by side so that you can compare them. This way you can examine them, you can evaluate them, you can think about them more accurately. That's the whole purpose. Jesus is getting people to think. And a parable is usually a story that is almost like an object lesson. It takes something physical, like farming, as we shall see. It lays it alongside something spiritual, like God's truth, so you can examine it, you can think about it, hopefully that you come to the point to understand it. And from this point on, parables would be Jesus' primary way of teaching the crowds. And he's about to give this object lesson that will help us see all the other object lessons, which he gives much uh, later and clearer. So we pick it up and it says, and in his teaching, he says, listen. He begins the parable in verse 3 by saying, listen. Do I have your attention? Listen. The word is akuo. It's used four times previous to this. After this point, Jesus uses it uh, roughly 40 times. Very interesting. It's a very strong word. It's imperative. It's a command. Our attention is mandatory. Listen. How many of us with kids do we say that to our kids, right? Listen. Listen to me. And then we like lose it, right? All the parents said amen. And we'll do a confession over here afterwards for the feelings that we have grown up with. And our children will have therapy with our wife, my wife over there for the damage we've done. See, our response to the command makes all the difference. And obviously, listening and hearing to what Jesus is saying, it becomes a very key concept. And all the miracles that Jesus has, you know, has done is done for a purpose of proving who he is so that we would listen what he says. And every time that Jesus says, listen, he's about to say something very significant, and he doesn't want us to miss it. So here's my question. Are you listening? Put your phone down. 
Oh, it's my Bible. I know. Just put it down. The parable is about to begin. A farmer went out to sow a seed. And in those days, farmers didn't plant wheat or grain crops in rows like we see really nice today. They broke the ground. They softened the soil with a wooden plow. They scattered their seed by hand. And often, they reversed the process. So they would cast the seed, and then they would plow the soil. And the farmer would tie a bag to his waist, sling it around his shoulder, and sling the seed around. And this field would be bordered probably on one side, maybe by a fence or maybe with... uh, um, uh, you know, a, a hedgerow of some sorts, the thickets. Maybe on the other side there was a footpath, and that would be his area, that would be his border. And uh, even when he tried to conserve seed, because every seed was precious, some seed landed where it couldn't grow. That was just the nature of farming. Some year's seed was wasted. And as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came in and they ate it up. Some fell in the rocky places, and it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell amongst the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, it grew, it produced a crop. And multiplying 30, sometimes 60, some 100 times. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. We've already seen some shorter parables in the Gospel of Mark, but this is the first example of a story parable. It's longer, it's drawn out. The comparison, the analogy. And Jesus begins to describe these places where the seed falls. The first place where the seed falls is along the path. Like I said, in his day, the long narrow strips would often be the border for the farmer's uh, field. These paths would eventually get beaten down by all the walking, It reminds me of when I used to walk to Acadia Junior High and Fort Richmond Collegiate every day, uphill, both ways, in the snow, barefoot, right? But no, walking to school every day, um, and I wasn't the only one, but we would walk through a field behind behind Acadia and, and in towards FRC, and there was a path. And no one ever consciously made this path. It was just us as students walking back and forth to school each day. And the ground of that path, which cut through uh, soccer fields and and baseball diamonds, was as hard as rock. There was no grass that could grow there. And that's what this path in the parable is like. The seeds just lay on the top of the path, and so the birds swoop down and eat them. It's like when you do grass seed at your house. You see the birds, the robins, the martins, they all come down and you want to chase them away. But this is what's going on. The second place where the seed fell was this rocky places. And, and sometimes we think of it like, oh, it fell amongst a bunch of big rocks. No, 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 no. Mark is describing something different here. The rocky places are those areas that just have a very thin, you know, layer of dirt resting on top of a, let's say, an underlying shelf of limestone. So the dirt might be several inches deep at most, but the sun would come in and would, would uh, heat up the soil so quickly that the seed would germinate and spring up but the roots would stop at the rock. It can't penetrate. And the plant would literally starve to death from the lack of moisture. And so that's what happened when these seeds would fall in these rocky places. The third place where the seed fell was amongst thorns. It looked like good soil, but it also contained roots and weeds that were natural to that area. And 
dormant weeds and thorns would grow up together along the plants and choke them out before it could bear any fruit. It's kind of like my lawn and dandelions at springtime. My neighbors often comment on how much I like the color yellow. And then there's the last place where the seed fell, which was on good soil. And that seed fell, it took good soil, grew up, produced a crop. And that crop was 30, 60, 100 fold, which is a very good crop. Most farmers would be happy even for a tenfold increase on their, what they've sown. So this represented actually an exceptionally good harvest. And so that's the parable. Jesus tells a simple story about a farmer sowing seed. The seed fell into four different types of soil with four different types of corresponding results. And then Jesus closes out the parable. Now remember, people are listening to this. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, Peter, let's get out of here. Lift anchor, let's move. Starts, by the day, starts the day by saying, listen. Ends it by saying, anybody with ears to hear, he should listen and understand. So, let me ask you a question. What have you heard today in this parable? What have you understood today? Are you listening? Because Mark continues, he goes, when he was alone with the twelve and the others around him, they begin to ask about the parable. So you got, here you got the twelve now alone with them. They're probably feeling pretty privileged, but they just don't really understand what's going on. And Mark interrupts the flow here for a moment. You know, Remember how we said a parable is sort of like a, a way of laying out a spiritual truth along something that is very common, right? Down-to-earth story and illustration. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, we want to know what this means because they're, they're hearing, but they're not getting it. And before explaining the parable to him, Jesus says something that's very interesting, and I would go so far as to say it's even disturbing. This is what he says. He says, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Guys, the secret has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So they may be ever seeing, but never per uh, perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. What is Jesus saying here? Like, he's saying he speaks in parables to make sure that some people won't hear the truth of the kingdom. Are you serious? Yeah. That's exactly what he says. Now, to some degree, we all understand that, right? Don't we? The Bible often talks about having ears to hear, but not everyone who hears the gospel will really hear the gospel. The Apostle Paul says, the natural person does not accept things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so only those who have ears to hear will understand the power of the story. It doesn't make this statement any easier to accept. As a matter of fact, many people look at this and go, that's incredibly unfair. Why would Jesus say things in such a way as to hide it from the people who really need it? And we see that in verse 12, that Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Where God spoke words of judgment against Israel. Why? Because they refused to hear the truth of God's word. If you go back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6 is a great passage. Isaiah is caught up in a vision. God forgives his sin in a wild way. Then he sends him out to preach to the hard-hearted people of Israel. And Isaiah's prophetic mission is to tell his generation that they won't listen to God because they 
haven't been listening to him. And since they won't listen, their window into God's kingdom is closing. A problem is happening. It's going to get harder and harder for them to understand what God is saying. And God will still speak to what is to come. He will still prophesy about Jesus, but they won't understand it because they don't want to. They've made themselves sermon-proof. So now you have Jesus in the exact same situation as Isaiah. Some won't understand even when they hear. Some won't perceive even when they see. Why? Because they're not going to accept Jesus. And we've seen it already throughout the Mark's Gospel. Everywhere Jesus goes, he runs into opposition. And if they're going into uh, to question everything he says, and he's not going to let them complicate his message for everybody else who wants to hear. So he'll speak in a way that the spiritually abled can hear. And it doesn't mean that those on the outside are denied belief. It just means that they're denied further insight into the kingdom as long as their unbelief continues. As long as they're alive, there's always an opportunity to repent and to believe. That's why Jesus came. But until they do, Jesus will go to the ones who draw near to him. So think of the parables as we go into them like a filter. Some people are really interested in Jesus. Some people are pretending to be. And some people aren't at all. And the parables actually begin to sort people out. Which comes down to the question, and again, we personalize this. What kind of person are you? Now we need to keep going because the answer lies in the different types of soil. The Bible says that the Word of God is function. It's meant to function as a mirror so that we can look into the Word and we can actually see ourselves clearly as we actually are. Jesus is in that familiar situation. And like I said before, you can't remain neutral with Jesus. You have to pick a side. And this is a wide variety of responses to him. You, you have the scribes and the Pharisees who are now plotting to destroy him. They can't abide by his self-declaration that they think he's a blasphemer because he called himself the son of God. He claimed authority over the law of God. They want him dead. Last week we saw that his own family thinks he's crazy. They want to rescue him from himself. They think he's absolutely delusional. You have these disciples though. These guys are a little different because they have left their livelihood to follow this one person who claims to be the Messiah. And then you have this multitude of people who press at Jesus. And I would venture to say that the majority are not doing that because they want him to be their savior. It's probably because they heard him as a healer. And he's also now saying things that other people haven't said. And so the issue is, why is, this, why is there this wide variety of responses to Jesus? Why are people who hear the very same gospel of the kingdom preached responding in such wide, desperate ways? And Mark records Jesus' teaching in this parable. We know it as the parable of the sower. It should be called the parable of the soil. 
my, when I write my Bible, I'll put that in there. Because really, the soil right here is the center of the stage. And unlike most of Mark, where Jesus is pushed to center stage, at this moment, what the parable is, is actually about is the soil and the issue on how you hear and receive the word of God. So it's really about the parable of the soil. And Jesus said to him, don't you guys understand this? If you don't understand this, how are you going to understand any other parable? He's telling the boys, like all the other parables are not going to make sense if you don't get this one. If you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand the parable of the mustard seed. You're not going to understand the parable of the hidden treasure, the unmerciful servant, the workers in the vineyards, the parable of the wedding banquet, the parable of the good Samaritans, the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, parable of the good shepherd. And it's so critical for the Holy Spirit to open up this parable to you and to me. If we don't understand this, a lot of what Jesus says will not make sense. Parables have a central point that Jesus is trying to drive home. And he's actually saying to his disciples that this is, a, this is a source parable. This is the foundation parable. This parable really explains to you what's happening and what I'm doing as I teach in parables. And so now he begins to interpret the parables for the disciples. And so he breaks it down. I, I, I wonder if Jesus is exasperated with the disciples. Because I know he'd be exasperated with me. And so he breaks it down. He goes, guys, you know, focus, focus. Put your abacus down, focus. Right? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like a seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes, takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like the seed sown on rocky places. Hear the word. At once they receive it with joy, but since they have no root, it lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown amongst thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this light, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And others, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop. Some 30, 60, some 100 times. So who's the farmer? The farmer represents anybody who shares God's word with others. So if you're giving biblical counsel to somebody, you are a farmer planting God's word. If you're a parent talking to your child about God's word, you are a farmer planting God's truth. If you're a student talking to one of your friends about the Bible, you are a farmer planting God's word. If you're a missionary, if you're a pastor, you are sharing or teaching God's word. You are a farmer and you're planting that seed. If you're at work and you're sharing with your co-workers, you are that farmer. And at the most foundational level, Jesus obviously is the farmer fulfilling the encompassing and the totality of the role. He is, in the Apostle of John's language of John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word, God Himself manifest to us. He spreads the seed of the Word, calling all to repent, calling all to believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's His message. And so He's out there spreading it. This parable, then, is not merely a story of a farmer sowing seed. It's a question from God to all of us. When the farmer sows his seed, what 
will the seed find to rest on? What kind of soil are hearts made up of? Jesus presents four types of soil, but ultimately there are only two kinds. When you think about it, there is the soil of the unfaith and the soil of faith. The first three are bad, just saying. The last one's good. Whenever the seed of the word is sown, I have to remind myself of this. All four types of soil is present. Whenever the gospel is preached, something happens. There's no neutral response to God's word. There's only a negative response or a positive response. And the truth is evident in this parable because there are different ways to respond to God's word. And we are all responding in some way. And Jesus wants his disciples, he actually also wants us to know that as we share the gospel, as we give biblical counsel, as we talk with others about the kingdom of God, it will be received differently by different people. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples and us today to expect different responses to the truth of God. And again, he says the first type of response in verse 15, the seed fell on the footpath, represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. Jesus is saying that some people are like a footpath when they hear God's word or the gospel or when they receive biblical counsel. They're so hard, they're so resistant to it that it doesn't penetrate them at all. And they could be hostile towards the farmer or they could be very polite and reflective. Uh, respectful, but either way, God's truth bounces off them. You ever meet people like that when you try to share your faith? What caused them to become so hard could be a number of things, but the bottom line is that they have no interest in the things of God. And because of this, they're, as Jesus said, they're easy prey for Satan's kingdom. He comes alongside, he takes the seed away. In other words, as soon as they hear it, they ignore it or they forget about it. They go on their way and God's truth has no relevancy for them. And Jesus is saying, every time the word is taught, every time it's proclaimed, think about this on every Sunday that you walk in, or every life group that you sit together, or every podcast that you ingest, what takes place next is spiritual warfare. We have to be aware of the war for the heart that takes place every time that the word is spoken. We have to take it with that kind of seriousness. We really do believe in e evil. At least I do. I really do believe in a spiritual enemy. I really do believe in Satan who wants to do anything he can to keep you and me distant from, cold from, separate from, the liberating, life-transforming power of God's Word. And that warfare takes place on the turf of your heart and others. And on your heart, even now, where you're sitting. It's taking place at this moment. Even those watching online. And I think this is why we ought to be very aware of the seriousness of what we do right now, of the seriousness of when we come together. Like, how do you come into this room? Now, I'm not saying the room's a holy aspect of it, 
is, but it's also just an auditorium, it's a gym. But how do you come in? What's the mentality of your heart when we gather together? And I, I mean, it's possible for this just to be another religious habit for some people, right? It's a habit that you have, you're sort of used to coming on a Sunday gathering. Or do you come aware of the fact that there is a war for your heart? Or do you come aware, seeking, seeking the protecting, the preventing, the delivering of, of grace of Jesus every time you hear the word of God shared? What's he saying to me? What do I, what's my takeaway? It's funny, because my wife and I, we have, after she spoke, you've had people come up and say, hey, look at your life lesson really spoke to me, and blah, blah, blah. And Sharon looked at me and goes, I don't remember saying any of that. And I had to say to her, it doesn't matter what you say. God's already doing stuff in people's life, and it's just something clicks in. And it's really bizarre, because I'll have people come up to me, you know, Pastor, you know, that message just really touched me here, blah, 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 blah. I, I, I like that's not even my text. I don't, I don't know where you heard that. But the fact is, they walked in looking for an expectation, looking for an encounter, looking for God, waiting for God to speak. And you're in a spiritual war there because I could be boring the daylights out of you, or you would be wanting to check your phone and check your social media, check the score of the games and everything else. It's a spiritual warfare, however you want to put it. C.S. Lewis picks it up in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it, go out and buy it. It's fabulous. It's a series of letters um, about the counsel from one senior demon by the name of Screwtape to a junior demon by the name of Wormwood. Now, Wormwood has this assignment to keep a man from coming to faith in Christ. And in one letter, Screwtape, he, he says this, It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things in their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. In context, Screwtape is talking about prayer. And he writes this, he says, Do all you can, dear Wormwood, to keep our man from praying. Take out the desire. And so Satan actually wants to take our desires away, our desires for God away, no matter how small they may be. Our prayer, you know... <laughs> Our prayer can actually begin to do him in. That's why Peter tells us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone who he may devour. And so Satan has a million methods of taking the seed away. He's really good at distracting us from God. Think about it. Doesn't the bed always feel better than the Bible? Right? Isn't the conversation on social media more interesting than actually taking some time and praying? Doesn't self-justification feel way better than repentance? Isn't Netflix better than a nightly meditation on God's Word? How about God's Word and chill? How does that one work, huh? Aren't you tempted right now to pull out your phone? To plan your week? To make your grocery list? To check, out, check something out just because that's what we naturally do? Where do you think all that comes from? Well, part of it is our physiology and our brain and the way that we are wired now and how we're driven by addictions to our handhelds. 
But a part of it also is somebody who's seeking someone to devour. So don't let him. Be watchful. Second type of response to God, his word is the, the shallow heart. And again, Jesus explains it with the rocky soil. People, and it's interesting what he says, because people who hear the message and respond immediately with what? With joy. What's joy? It's an emotion. Isn't that fascinating? And since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as the problems show up, as soon as they're persecuted for believing. And Jesus is saying that some people hear the message. They hear the biblical advice. They hear the gospel. They get excited about it. And immediately, they receive it with what? With joy, with emotion. They have a positive response to it. But then when the hot sun, in other words, when life actually starts kicking in, they have problems. They may find themselves being actually persecuted, right? They have problems at home. They have problems at work. They have problems with their finances, with their families, with their health. And they forget what they have heard. They fall away. Maybe they're trying to live for Jesus and doing things right. Hmm. But are persecuted for believing God's word. People maybe start mocking them, right? Making fun of them, rejecting them, embarrassing them because they got started going to church or, you know, they got baptized and they started reading their Bible or praying. And what happens? Jesus says they simply fall away. Their response to God's truth was purely emotional. They received it with joy because it was good news. But it didn't penetrate their heart. It didn't penetrate their will. And underneath the emotional excitement and appearance of the commitment is a hard surface that blocks God's word from getting deep into the heart where the real transformation takes place. Their hard-heartedness is not initially apparent, being buried beneath the surface, and it's going to take time. But their joy for God's word will be replaced by rejection eventually, because it's just not there. It's just an emotional response. The third response is the divided heart. And Jesus explains that in verse 18, that the seed fell amongst the thorns, represented others who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message gets crowded out by the worries of this life, by the lure of wealth and the desire for other things, right? Which is so much our world today. And so no fruit is produced. And Jesus is saying that some people like uh, this thorny ground when it comes to God's words, Jesus says they, they hear God's word, but then it gets crowded out or choked out or it gets pushed out. And I love what Jesus says. It gets pushed out by three things. The worries of this life. The worries of health, finances, jobs, our country, your family. Maybe even kids. The worries begin to pull them away from God. Instead of being controlled and driven by Jesus, they are controlled and driven by whatever they are worried about. And they serve their worries rather than serving the Lord. The worries of this life has become a thorn and a weed that does not allow room for Jesus to grow. How many of us are letting worry overtake our life? And there's no room for him. Gets crowded out by the lure of wealth. Again, our culture, the love of money and wealth begins to crowd out God from their life. 
the deceitfulness of riches tricks them into thinking, you know, true joy and meaning are actually found in having more money than making disciples. Over time, their interest in money actually outgrows their interest in God. I've seen that. I've seen that with former pastors. Guys who've got... Okay, can I be transparent? Go off script. You don't mind when I do that, right? Friends, compatriots, who've served in churches, who've got tired of the people, who've walked away from their calling and decided, I'm going to go into the real world, and maybe they have gifts and, and abilities of business and whatever, and they just start making money hand over fist. And then that's it. They never go back. Boggles my mind. I'm not being judgmental, I'm just stating a fact. Boggles my mind that over time their interest in money actually outgrows their interest in God. They start making decisions on what makes them more money than rather what makes them more like Jesus. Their love for money begins to squeeze out their love for God out of their life. And so that lure for wealth actually has become a thorn in a weed that has no interest in Jesus. And that is truly where our culture is. But it also gets crowded out by the desire for other things. And this could be anything like working more, fishing, it could be golfing, heaven forbid, working in the yard, hanging out with family, reading books, and just doing something else besides listening and hearing God's word. Can you do those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. The problem is when those other things begin to replace God's word and they become more important than God and your life. So this desire for other things becomes a thorn and a weed that causes you to take God's word lightly or ignore it or not even listen to it at all. And then the last response is to God's word. Jesus explains in verse 20, those who hear it accept it and produce this massive harvest. The difference between these people and the rest is that they heard God's word and they accepted it, the others did not. The others may have had an appearance of accepting it and believing it, but they didn't. And this person has actually accepted it. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians. He says, and we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. In other words, there are those who actually take it in. And when the good ground person hears the word of God, it impacts how they live. Think about this. It impacts on how they live. And it impacts, when we hear the scriptures brought, it impacts and it should impact on how we think and how we feel. And when it comes to the worries of life, God's word should be able to guide us through it. When it comes to the lure of wealth, God's word should help us manage our money rather than our money managing us. When it comes to the desire for things, God's word aligns their desires with God's desires. And the good ground person is accepting the word of God. They are embracing and receiving it and believing it and agreeing with it and applying it. They just don't hear it, and they're transformed by it. And Jesus says that this person will produce a harvest. They will bear fruit. 
And I love this, because producing a harvest from your life, bearing fruit, is the ultimate marker of those gen who genuinely believe. Having been made alive in the Spirit of God, uh, Matthew tells us they produce fruit in keeping with repentance. They produce fruit, according to Philippians and Colossians, a fruit of righteousness. They produce in Galatians the fruit of the Spirit. And then in Ephesians, Matthew, and 2 Corinthians, they produce the fruit of God's love language, which is obedience. And Jesus goes on to say these believers will produce a huge harvest. But notice that not all believers will be equally productive. But all believers will be productive. They will produce God's fruit in their life. And if God's fruit is not coming for their from their life, then God is not in their life. Now that's a harsh statement. If God's fruit is not coming from their life, then God is not in their life. If they're not producing God's fruit, then they have not been accepting God's word. And I think this is actually pretty humbling. Listen, the litmus test for our receptivity of the word is not a spontaneous moment of joy. Let's not fool ourselves. The litmus test for our true receptivity of the word is later outside of this room when you leave this place and the hardships of life and the persecutions of the gospel drive you beyond your strength and your wisdom and your righteousness and when your life doesn't work the way that you want it to work that's the test and where's God in all that I want to take you back to the punchline of the parable he who has ears let him hear back in verse 9 and really that's a call for you and me to take responsibility for the way that we receive the word of God now, what's the balance? I think this, you know, here's what you need to understand, and this is actually good theology, that God in his sovereignty doesn't just ordain the ends, but he also ordains the means as well. I, I, I wonder if you understand that. God is not just concerned about the result, but he has ordained all the means, all the ways we get to that result. And the way that God has chosen in his sovereignty to accomplish his plan, think about it, and Jesus is doing this, is through the preaching and the belief of his word. The seed. That means a part of his sovereign plan. And it's right for Jesus to declare his sovereignty and at the same time to call the crowd to responsibility but that's the gospel. It, it's never an either or. It's a both and. Jesus uses hear in two ways. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? It means to receive the word of God, to come with that res, uh, receptivity of heart. Because our hearts are so easily distracted. It's so easy to start fiddling with our iPhone, right? Or to be thinking what's going to eat in a few minutes or, or what you're going to be facing tomorrow or even Tuesday. And so to come into this room, when we gather together every Sunday with a receptive heart, praying, God, 
Give me focus. God, clear my mind. God, open my heart. I want to receive your word. I want to receive your guidance. I want to receive what you're directing me to do. And it means to accept that. And I think for many of us, that's very hard for us to do. And it also means I have to act on it. And so that as you leave this place, that you determine that you will live a life that's based on God's word. This is what I heard. This is how I heard it broken down. Uh, I need to now begin to live a hungry life. I want to be as one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And you can't help but look at this passage and remember that the one who is talking about the sowing of the word is himself the word. He is the word. He's the final revelation of God. He is the one who is the word, is the lamb. And he came to suffer and die so that we would have grace to believe. And I think we got to praise God for that grace. we got to praise God for a sovereign plan. And, we, and do you take that responsibility for the condition and the character of your heart as you hear the message and as you hear the scripture? <coughs> My simple takeaway is this. How we listen to God really matters. How we listen to God really matters, whether it's in the the form of a song that we have sung today, whether it's the time of prayer when we go to the crosses and maybe it's the conversations that we have with our people and when we come together, maybe it's a time at the communion table when we break bread together, or maybe it's the life lesson. Maybe it's a time of just quiet prayer, just, just me and him. But how we listen to God really matters. So how do we get the good soil? Do we get it by simply being a good person, right? If so, then what, 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 what standard of good is good enough? Do we get it by trying to remove the rocks underneath, you know? If so, how do we, you know, pull sight to look deep enough? Do we get it by pulling out the weeds in our life? You know, how sure am I that I got the root? I'll say this, self-care won't produce what we need. We can never be good enough. We can never remove all the rocks. We can never pull out enough weeds. We need another way. And interestingly, only the gospel account Oh, sorry, the only gospel account that doesn't include this parable is John's. But the truth it proclaims is very present. Jesus makes a turn towards Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. And he tells his disciples about his upcoming death. And he says this in John chapter 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much. Who is Jesus talking about? With the sower, with the farmer. Even agriculture points to the gospel. 
He's saying the power of the gospel is in his death. The power of the gospel is a seed planted in the ground. So Jesus is not only the farmer, he's God's seed. And the fruit we need grows out of his grave. Is the seed really that powerful? If you come up into my library, there's numerous of old, dusty, mildew-smelling books. My wife often says, your office stinks, huh? to which I say, thank you and I light a stinky candle. But amongst those stinky, mildew, mustery books is one of a number of authors, but one, a British author, preacher, by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. Now, I got this love for books and for old pastors and preachers from my, my brother Ron, and I once came into an old garage sale where a guy was selling books, and I bought boxes of books for 25 cents, for 5 cents, 10 cents, 50 cents. And in them were all these G. Campbell Morgan books. And he's this old British pastor, and he told one story about a tomb at an Italian cemetery that he visited. And here at the cemetery, there was this enormous, enormous granite slab on top of the grave. And sometimes between... Some, at some point in time, between burying the individual, the man, and the placement of that granite slab, an acorn fell into the ground between the two. That acorn grew, and that acorn was so strong that it split this granite slab, and between the two pieces, there is now an oak tree. It's really that powerful. You think about it, a seed is so weak that you can crush it. And that's what Satan thought he did to Jesus on the cross. But it's one of his bones was broken. In his death, Jesus wasn't a crushed seed. He was a planted seed. He fell into the earth. He died. And three days later, the power was released. Why did he do that? Why did he come as a seed? Theologian Tim Keller points out if he came with a sword, he would have cut us to pieces. If he came with fire, he would have burned us to ashes. So he came, to be, he came as a seed to be planted for us. And that's the secret of the kingdom. And when you see that, something happens deep inside. Your, your heart of stone begins to crack open to Jesus. And once he's inside, his word grows and grows and grows. And there's a power that comes into our life. And there's power of the seed and power of the word of God. So let me close with this. We all start out the same way. We're all born sinners, separated from God. We can thank Adam for that. But God's seed is more powerful than our unbelief. And perhaps this morning, maybe, you know, you walked in and you're considering Jesus in a new way. If so, the seed of the gospel, as I spoke today, is being sown. Maybe you walked in here and you're not wanting to connect with Jesus. That was the last thing from your mind. And you're going to go walking out and maybe now you are wanting to. What happened? I would say that God broke that granite slab. But it started before today. When God planted the trees at creation, you've got to think about it. He had a cross in mind. When the first seed died, the resurrection was already planned. When our heart cracks open to Jesus, our salvation was already sealed in eternity past. And that's the kind of God we have. One who loves us enough 
to break us, who dies to save us, who rises to give us life. And if we won't listen to that message, what is the message we're going to listen to? So, stand with me, please. Out of all the verbatim I spewed on you this morning, what's the one thing that God is speaking to the inner recess of your heart? And it may have nothing to do with what I talked about, but it has everything to do to you being open to His Spirit, to His seed on the soil of your heart. And what are you going to do about it? That's the care. Father, in your wisdom, you created us. By your providence, you rule us. You have planted us. So penetrate our inmost being, your holy light, so that our way of life may always be one of faithful service to you. May we never hesitate to run to your all-forgiving arms of mercy. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word and the truth it contains. And my prayer is that you'd give me a teachable spirit, that you'd give me ears that are ready and willing to hear the truth and a heart that is open and prepared to search the scriptures daily so I may grow in grace day by day because I need it and I need to give it to others, but I would also increase in a knowledge and understanding of who you are and all that you have done for those who trust in you. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen. So Sanctuary, have a good July. Have an even better August. And then when life gets back to normal, we all get together. Let's, let's kick it off with a great fall. Be sensitive to what God is calling you on your holidays. Don't leave him, leave him out on your vacation. Allow him to speak to you. In ancient times, the one who blessed, extended his hands for a blessing, those receiving did likewise. And our worship team is going to sing you out with a blessing as well. But I want to say this. Soul, thank God for the gift of his presence. And with a renewed sense of unity, and as we begin the week together, may God grant you moments of peace. Think about that. And as you open yourselves to people, may he grant you empathy in your interactions. May you not only hear, but also listen deeply to the stories of those that he has placed in your world. And may you be the hands and have the heart of Christ as you share his words. Go in peace now and live the church. Be blessed. It's you.